Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Who's, uh, who's been to Israel? Handful of, oh, a lot of you guys. All right, so if you've been to Israel, you've probably seen a sign like this um, in a hotel or something like that. Uh, Shabbat is the Hebrew word for Sabbath, and um, pretty much every hotel uh, in Israel has a designated Sabbath elevator. And um, it's the elevator that observant or practicing Jews use during the Jewish Sabbath from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. So you're probably wondering what makes a Sabbath elevator different than a regular elevator. And uh, it's that the Sabbath elevator stops at every floor on the way up and down so that you don't have to push any buttons because pushing buttons would be a form of working on the Sabbath. And so you patiently ride all the way up, all the way down, and the door opens by itself at each floor. Um, <clears throat> so to some of us, that may sound maybe a little bit silly and wondering, like, does God really care if I push elevator buttons on the Sabbath? Um, but every time that I've seen a Shabbat elevator packed full of observant Jews, I think these are people who take God seriously. Um, it's interesting. Sometimes in our culture, people describe themselves as either practicing or non-practicing adherence to their religion. I'm a non-practicing Muslim or Jew or Buddhist or whatever it is. And if they say they're non-practicing, they mean that they identify with maybe the culture and the tradition of that religious, religious faith, but that faith doesn't have a whole lot to do with how they live or order their daily lives. So you could, in that case, spend a week in the home of a non-practicing Muslim or Buddhist or whatever, and you might see some art on the walls or some books on the shelves that would clue you in to their religious affiliation, but you wouldn't observe anything in their daily lives that looked maybe all that different from your own daily life. So um, I once heard a Jewish comedian say, I'm not really Jewish, I'm just sort of Jewish, right? That's the idea of non-practicing. So on the other hand, for somebody to describe themselves as a practicing Jew or Muslim or whatever would mean that for them their religion isn't just a culture or a tradition that they kind of loosely identify with, but that their faith is central to the way that they see the world, to the way they see themselves, and the way that they order their lives. They, it would mean that their faith is lived out, typically, in a set of practices. Um, things like a rhythm of prayer, or meditation, or following a dietary or, or dress code of some kind, or observing certain holy days or seasons. And so if you were to spend a week living in the home of a practicing or observant Muslim or Jew or Buddhist or whatever, it would be really clear to you that their religion isn't just a cultural affiliation, but it's something that deeply shapes their heart, their mind, 
and their daily lives. It affects every part of them. And so here's what's interesting to me. Um, we're Christians, specifically Protestant Christians, meaning we're not Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. We're part of the Protestant tradition of Christianity. And really, we don't have this distinction of being a practicing or non-practicing Christian. It's just not really vocabulary that we use describing our own faith. Now, of course, we have a set of doctrines that we believe to be true. We have a sacred text that shapes the way that we see the world, but we don't really have a category for what it means to be a practicing Christian. We know what it is to be a professing Christian, one who has received Jesus as Lord, but what would it look like to be a practicing Christian? Or in other words, if someone were to come stay in our home with us for a week and observe our daily lives, they might see some art on the walls or some books on the shelves that would clue them in to our religious affiliation, but would there be anything in our actual daily lives that would cause them to say, these people take God seriously. Or in other words, if following Jesus were a crime, would they have enough evidence to convict us? What we're doing during this fall vision series is calling one another as the Antioch community to consider what it would look like to practice our faith in Jesus, to pursue a life that is truly Christian, not just Christian-ish. And so we have articulated a set of six biblical practices that uh, correspond to the vision and the mission that God has given our church, which is to join him in the reconciliation of all things. These six practices are communion with God, formation of ourselves, community with one another, hospitality to our city, justice in the world, and Sabbath with creation. And these practices are meant to be redemptive rhythms in our lives, not just empty religious rituals, but rich, life-giving, restorative ways of being and doing that turn our hearts towards God and towards the world he loves. And so another way of saying all this is that we sincerely believe, I sincerely believe that the way of Jesus is the best possible way to live that he has given us a new way of being human. And these six practices, other people may define them or break them down differently, but these six practices are our best attempt at trying to capture the rhythms that he lived by and asking what would it look like to be practicing followers of Jesus in the time and the place in which we find ourselves. So that's what we're doing this fall. Last week, Pastor Linda kicked us off and showed us what the Bible teaches about practicing a life of communion with God. Uh, in the language of Antioch's vision and mission, I would summarize it like this. When it comes to the practice of communion, what does reconciliation with God look like? It looks like knowing, loving, and serving God through the practice of communion. It's the daily pursuit of presence over distraction toward a life of abiding in Christ. And so our practices, as you can see, aren't a list of rules. 
There's no rules about which buttons you can touch on which days. Our practices are really about a posture or about a pursuit, about a determination to move toward the most important relationships in our lives. And so practicing communion looks like loving or knowing, loving, and serving God in any way that we can. And so practically, that looks like listening to the voice of God through the scripture and through the spirit. It looks like listening to God and responding to him in prayer and obedience. It looks like creating space in our lives to be with him, to enjoy his presence. And it looks like learning to live all of life as an act of worship. And those things can get expressed in a million different ways. And so that's some of what it might look like to be people who practice communion with God as a way of life. That was last week. This week, we turn towards our second practice, which is the practice of formation. Or in other words, what does it look like to know, love, and serve ourselves as disciples of Jesus? Uh, Our scripture reading this morning was from Psalm 103. And uh, it's an amazing, beautiful, deep, powerful psalm um, that we could learn a lot from. But I want to focus in on this question. Um, What does this psalm show us about what a reconciled relationship with ourselves might look like? We'll come back to the first two verses. Look at them with me. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So here's the thing I want you to see. As you know, the Psalms, um, it's essentially a book of songs that God's people have been using for thousands of years now to teach us how to pray. And as I said a couple weeks ago, the Psalms is the only book in the Bible that's not meant to be read. It's meant to be prayed. And it contains 150 songs that teach us a vocabulary for prayer, and a posture for prayer, how to bring our whole self before God. So every once in a while, though, you come across a psalm, like in 103, that's clearly written about God, but it's actually not written to God. So who is the songwriter, David, addressing in Psalm 103? Who's he talking to? Praise the Lord, my soul. He's writing to his own soul. Or in other words, he's talking to himself. So, three quick points about your relationship with yourself. Number one is a biblical understanding of humanity includes the idea that each one of us has a relationship with ourself. You are in a relationship with yourself. That may sound like a strange idea. Let me look at a couple, let's look at a couple other examples of this just from the book of Psalms. Psalm 42. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Another one in Psalm 62. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. Okay, so in each of these Psalms and others, the author is addressing their own self. And it's obviously in a posture of prayer or praise or conversation with God, but they are acknowledging that it isn't just this me and God, but somehow it's me and God 
and me that are involved in this conversation. And so each one of us has a relationship with ourself. Number two, your relationship with yourself um, can either be a healthy one or an unhealthy one, a close one or a distant one. Just like all your other relationships with other people in your life, your relationship with yourself has the potential to be life-giving or to be painful. And the reason for that is because your relationship with yourself has been damaged by sin. Your own sin and the sins of others against you. And so this idea of a relationship with ourself, it's difficult to assess. If you're wondering, wow, do I have a healthy self-relationship? It's hard to say. Like if you had to select a relationship status with yourself on Facebook, I'd probably say it's complicated, <laughs> right? Um, now, I don't know about you, but this whole idea that I'm in a relationship with myself really wasn't part of my faith foundation, really wasn't part of the deal when I was learning what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But it was really about seven or eight years ago when I came to this realization that I have a relationship with myself, and I came to realize also that it's probably the least healthy relationship in my life. Meaning, um, I would often say things to myself, horrible things, hurtful things, that I would never say to anyone else. Sometimes out loud if I was alone, sometimes under my breath, sometimes just <clears throat> in, in inaudible ways. I realized that I was prone to neglect or ignore myself, not paying attention to my own needs physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, whatever. And came to realize that my both inner self and outer self were starved for attention. And so this relationship you have with yourself, just like every other relationship, will be affected by sin <clears throat> and therefore can be healthy or unhealthy. Um, and number three, Part of the reconciliation of all things, our articulation of the gospel of Jesus, includes the restoration of your relationship with yourself. This is part of the good news of Christ and his kingdom. That our self-relationship, no matter how damaged or broken or unhealthy it is, it can and is being redeemed. Jesus wants to heal your broken relationship with yourself. And so, um, let's talk about what that might look like and what that might mean to be people who pursue a reconciled relationship with ourselves. And I want to argue <clears throat> that it would look like learning to know, love, and serve ourselves in ways that form the image of Christ in us and honor his name in the world. And so first, we'll talk about knowing yourself. Knowing yourself. David, in this psalm, if you listen to the language that he uses, the words that he uses, and the passion and the feeling and the texture of these words, you'll notice that he's not addressing a stranger or even simply an acquaintance. He's writing to someone that he knows well. He's writing as a man who knows his own soul. 
He knows the questions that his soul is asking. He knows the words and the hope that his soul longs to hear. Verse two, praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. David is doing what I might call biographical theology here. He understands that in some ways similar to the scriptures, our life is a sacred text through which God reveals himself or makes himself known. God wants us to come to know his love through our lived experience, not just through secondhand accounts. So God wants us to know ourselves. Think about this famous portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? So amongst other things, Jesus is teaching his followers here to pay close attention to their own lives. According to Jesus, mature Christian spirituality is marked by the pursuit of self-knowledge. And apparently, we all have places in our lives that we can't see, but that he wants us to. The Johari window is a tool that psychologists have used for years to talk about this. And it's the idea that we all have these four places in our lives. We have open places in our lives, those things about us which are known to ourselves and to others. Uh, we have blind places in our lives, the things that others know about us, but we don't know. We have hidden places in our lives, the things that we know about ourselves, but others don't. And then there are unknown places in our lives, that which is known to neither us nor others around us. And every single one of us has all four panes of this window in our lives. How does that make you feel? Knowing that there are things other people know about you that you don't know about yourself. They might be good things. Did you ever think about that? That's kind of cool. <laughs> and I would argue that if you think about it like this, Jesus calling us to pay attention to our own lives, that this journey of transformation and self-knowledge begins when the unknown becomes known. When that which is hidden or blind or unknown is revealed in relationship with God, self, and others. And so this is true of all humans, any human that's pursuing uh, mental and emotional and social health, but I think this is especially true for us as followers of Jesus because as we see demonstrated in this psalm, knowledge of self and knowledge of God are intricately entwined. Meaning, if we really want to know God, we don't see knowledge of self as the end, but for us to know God <clears throat> is the end, it is the goal, it is the glory, but knowledge of self is a means to that end. So some of this may sound like 
weird, new age, Enneagram, mumbo jumbo, that sort of thing. But as followers of Jesus, we're part of a long tradition of people who have been saying this kind of thing. Th think about St. Augustine, early father in the church. Grant, Lord, listen to his prayer. Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Or John Calvin, the reformer, in the opening lines of his magnum opus, the Institutes of Christian Religion, he writes, nearly all wisdom we possess consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. And without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. So if we really want to know God, then we have to know ourselves. And if we really want to know ourselves, we have to know God. And so what does this true self-knowledge look like? In other words, what do I need, how do I need to know myself in order to know myself the way God created and redeemed me to? There's a book called The Gift of Being Yourself by David Benner, which has been really helpful for me and I know some of you as well. And he talks about knowing ourselves in three dimensions. First, we know ourselves as dearly loved by God. It's incredibly important that we start here. That the truest thing about me is that I am loved by God. Some of us have been around Christian environments where the first thing that I'm told about myself is that I'm depraved or that I'm broken or that I'm sinful or that I'm lost or that I'm filthy, or that I'm unworthy. Now, those are all true, but they're not the truest thing about you. The truest thing about you is that you are dearly loved by God. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. If this is who God is, then who are we? We are the recipients or the objects of his unending love. As those who are made in his image and likeness and those for whom his son came and lived and died and rose again. So the first step in knowing ourselves is to come to know ourselves as those who are dearly loved. And secondly, we come to know ourselves as sinners. Verse 10, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. David is writing here with a deep awareness of his own flaws, of his own insufficiencies, of his own tendency to rebel against God or to be ignorant of God. He's aware of those patterns and propensities within him. He knows himself as a sinner but he knows that's not who he really is. Thomas Merton wrote, before we can become who we really are, we must become conscious of the fact that the person who we think we are here and now is at best an imposter or a stranger. Knowing ourselves as sinners, being able to name our preferred ways of avoiding God is essential when it comes to self-knowledge. We know ourselves as dearly loved. We know ourselves as sinners. And finally, according to Benner, we know ourselves as in process of being redeemed and restored. 
Verses 13 and 14, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. We talk about God as a father, the noun, but sometimes we forget that God fathers us, the verb. He parents us. He forms us. He teaches us. He shapes us. As a father has compassion on his children, God knows how we're formed. He is actively committed to the formation of ourselves or helping us become who we are in Christ. And so we are in the process of being redeemed and restored. So self-knowledge as dearly loved as broken sinners and as those who are being put back together again. All three of those will be an ongoing process of coming to see the truth about who we really are. So that's a little bit about knowing yourself. Next, what does it look like to love yourself? Again, this is kind of like, I don't know, this isn't language I heard in church growing up. Clearly, when we talk about loving ourselves, we're not talking about thinking that we're awesome. We're not talking about anything that would look like pride or arrogance or self-centeredness or selfishness. But we're talking about some sort of redeemed, holy, righteous love for ourselves. Think about it this way. When Jesus is asked, of all the commands, what is the most important He famously replies in Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love your neighbor in the same ways that you love yourself. Jesus doesn't condemn self-love. He actually affirms it as a model for which we can use to base loving others off of. So in some ways, it's helpful for us, if this is weird language, to reverse engineer it a little bit. When he talks about loving others, what's he talking about? Well, the parable that he tells immediately after this is the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? It's a story of tending to the needs of those that we encounter. It's a story of learning to value the human life that's in front of us, no matter what kind of condition it's in. It's a story of providing and caring for those that God would bring along. And so if that's what it looks like to love our neighbor, we can assume then that Jesus is saying, that's all good stuff to do to you as well. To provide for yourself, to meet your needs, to care for your soul, to value this sacred human life that God has created and entrusted to you. Sometimes it looks like listening to yourself taking seriously the thoughts, the feelings, the memories, even the things that your body might be trying to say. 
And as we see in the psalm, it often looks like reminding ourselves to believe the good news about who God is and who God says we are. And so this journey towards formation includes knowing ourselves, secondly, loving ourselves, and finally, serving ourselves. Which, to be honest, is almost the reason I didn't do this whole series to avoid this phrase. (laughs) (laughs) Self-serving is not something we typically would associate with following Jesus. In fact, we know that he calls us to self-denial. But the reality is that the self that Christ calls us to deny is not our true self, but it's our false self. It's the self that's masked. It's the self that's hiding. It's the self that has a story it tells about itself other than the one that God has declared. And so, practically, there is an invitation to learn how to know, love, and even serve ourselves in a way that honors Christ and forms his image in us. So in very practical terms, what might this look like? Let me give you four or five uh, ideas as we close. What does it look like to serve yourself? Number one, I would say it involves the practice of self-examination. We see this in other places in the Psalms where the psalmist would pray to God, search me, O God, know my heart, see if there would be any sinful ways in me. This is that jahari window, that plank in the eye. I assume that there's things God knows about me that he wants me to see. And so I'm asking him by his spirit and by the scripture to help me see what he sees. Practice self-examination. Number two, confess your sins. Every week as we gather for worship, included in our liturgy, is a time to confess our sins. And the hope is that as we pray this prayer of confession, week after week, year after year, that it becomes ingrained into our consciousness and our spirituality, that we live with a posture of confession. Confessing your sins, or in layman's terms, admitting that you're wrong, is one of the most Christian things we can do. Number three, seek help in dealing with your past. Again, for me, this maybe wasn't part of the deal as I was growing up in the church. To seek the help of community or pastors or therapists or counselors or doctors was somehow discouraged or seen as less spiritual than other ways of being. And I'll tell you, from my own experience and even more so from my understanding of who God is and how he's made humans to function, there's absolutely no shame in seeking help in dealing with the broken places in your own soul and your own story. When somebody shares with me that they're going to counseling or getting therapy, Sometimes they're embarrassed to say that as if that were bad news. And I try to always affirm that is good news. And that's where we should probably all be. Fourth, pursue your vocation. 
And by this, I simply mean for those of you that have a sense that there is something specific that God has put you on this planet to do. There's this thing that is in you and you're trying to figure out what to do with it. I think part of what it looks like to know, love, and serve yourself in a God-honoring way is to take seriously that calling and to steward your vocation, understanding you get one shot at this thing. This is the one life you get to live here. What does it look like to chase after that thing God's put in you in a way that is a unique expression of your life? I don't know what that looks like, but I do think there's an invitation towards it. And finally, serving ourselves, and this in some ways may be the most central or practical or daily application, is learn how to preach the gospel to yourself. This is what David is doing throughout this psalm. He's telling himself things he already knows. He's reminding himself of the things that he believes about God. The good news of a God who has forgiven his sins. The good news of a God who is loving and compassionate and kind. The good news that God is a father who is forming me into the person he created me to be. Knowledge of self isn't the end. We preach a gospel of a king and a kingdom that has come and is coming in the rule and the reign of Jesus. And that gospel has something to do with every single part of your life in every single day of your life. Oftentimes, I find myself in moments of insecurity, in moments of anxiety, in moments of fear, in moments where life circumstances has brought out the worst in me, where I'm defensive, where I'm angry, where the idols of my heart are being threatened. What's the story that I tell myself to cheer myself up in those moments? When my sense of identity is threatened, when I feel like a failure or like a phony or like a reject, when the path before me feels unstable or insecure, what do I say to myself to cheer myself up? Well, maybe I say, well, at least I'm not as bad as they are. <laughs> or maybe I suck at this, but I'm really great at this. <laughs> Whatever the story is, that is our functional gospel that we're preaching to ourselves. And if it's not the gospel of Jesus... It's not going to do the job. In very practical terms, every time I step up to tee box number one, my most insecure and vulnerable spot, I am a terrible golfer, and I keep going. And I'm standing with three other guys who are always better than me, and I'm trying to say something to myself in that moment. You know what I've learned to say? I am secure and significant in Christ. <laughs> this drive <laughs> does not define my identity or my worth. <laughs> These guys may laugh at me, reject me, whatever else. I am loved by Jesus. 
That's on the golf course, but I need it even more in a lot of other places in life. There's a prayer I picked up from a Catholic theologian. I can't quite remember his name, but it's become something of a breath prayer for me over the last few years. And it says that I am the one in whom Christ dwells and delights. I live in the unshakable kingdom of God. Learn to preach the gospel to yourself. That's the gospel that brings us here today. That's the gospel that makes us one with God and one with one another and is making us even one with ourselves as well. So Pastor Linda's gonna come lead us to the table as we receive communion. And I wanna invite you in this time to posture yourselves in such a way that you could hear and receive the good news of Jesus.